Today we consider the little bird who is not overlooked. Welcome. It's another look into the life and message of Elizabeth Elliot. She called us to live to a higher standard each day. To not be satisfied with just a little empty religion in life as a shallow substitute for giving God our best. Our series continues as we hear from family, friends, and others in the coming weeks, all influenced by Elizabeth's life and message. Hey, thanks for joining us again today. We are continuing our series, His Eye is on the Sparrow. We'll have uh, part nine in that series, and part ten will be a question and answer session. We'll think about the language of the Indians, about the theory that outsiders were cannibals, about marriage, and more. Joining us as we think about the Indians of Ecuador, Amy Van Dyke, lead curator at the Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C. Also, Steve McCauley, son of Ed, who was one of the five missionaries killed. He acknowledges that fewer and fewer people remember the story of those martyrs. First, though, his eye is on the sparrow, part nine, as we think about the language of the Alka people, about how easy it is to pick up the language if you're really young, and about the danger of cannibals. Several years after the five men were killed in Ecuador, I was living with those Indians. They were called Aucas in those days, A-U-C-A. They're now called Waurani. And of course, they spoke a very strange language that nobody from the outside had ever learned. And it was a horrible job trying to learn a language when you have no teachers and no books and no interpreters because there was nobody that spoke the language that spoke any language that I knew. And so you just have to try to learn it the way a baby learns it, but we have completely lost the ability that a baby has. It fascinates me to observe the language learning process of my grandchildren, uh, to see that it doesn't have anything to do with the child's IQ. That child, every child in the world, unless he has some serious mental deficiency, is perfectly capable of learning to speak exactly the way his mother and father speak. It's just a miraculous ability to imitate, which they lose eventually, and they lose it pretty fast. When you get to be 12 years old, you probably can learn a language a whole lot faster than somebody 20. And I learned a language when I was in my 20s, and then I had to learn another language when I was in my 30s, and there was a big difference between my ability to learn the one in my 30s. But to try to sit there and imitate what the Indian says was very difficult for me where it was a snap for my daughter. She was three years old. She was bilingual by the time we went in there. She spoke Quechua and English. And then she learned Alka in about, I would say, four or five weeks. And she was speaking fluently. And it was the most humiliating experience. But when I learned the language, and of course I had questions that had been building up in my mind that I wanted to ask these people, and I was talking with one of the men who had done the killing. In fact, he was the very first one who threw a spear. His name was Gikita. And he told me all, everything that happened on that Sunday afternoon of January the 8th, 1956. And then I talked to Gimari, who was 
a young girl, if any of you have seen the video, there is a documentary video called Through Gates of Splendor, and it, it is just what I said, documentary. It's not dramatized, but there are pictures there of the actual friendly contact that the five men had two days before they were killed. And in that sequence, you see one Alka man and two Alka women who spent several hours with the men in a perfectly friendly, relaxed, trusting way. And this girl was then about 15 years old. The men had named her Delilah because, of course, they didn't know her name. And I found out that her name was Gimadi. So I was sitting down there with Gimadi one day. And I said, now, Gimadi, tell me this. When you went back to your people after you were, spent that afternoon with my husband and the others, what did you tell your people about these foreigners? And she said, I told them they are cannibals. Now, there'd been a lot of argument among the Alcas when gifts were being dropped to them as to whether these white men could be trustworthy. And they'd never received anything but evil from white men up until that time. And so they had a lot of fear and a lot of misgiving about it. And they did think that all outsiders were cannibals. They themselves had never had cannibalism. And as far as I've been able to discover, there's never been any cannibalism in any tribe in South America. But where they got the idea, who knows, but they thought that these men were cannibals. And so Gimadi comes back and confirms it. She says, yes, they are cannibals. So I said to her, Gimadi, why did you say that? And she giggled and she said, onongi, which means for no reason, just a silly whim of a 15-year-old girl. And that just might have been the straw, you know, that tipped the scales. I don't know that, of course, but there are many, many mysteries connected with the whole thing. And I thought of how God would allow a silly teenage girl perhaps to be the crucial one to see to it that five men were killed. Maybe that had something to do with it. And then I thought, would God allow that to happen? God called these men. He set them apart. He gave them a vision to be missionaries. He sent them to Ecuador. He sent them to different tribes in Ecuador. He gave Nate Saint the marvelous ability as a jungle flyer, a genius in dropping the gifts, in creating what he called his bucket drop system, and in landing that little plane safely many, many times on that little sand strip in the Kuraray River. God called them, would God allow the whim of a silly teenager to decide their fate? And then I thought of John the Baptist, God's most faithful servant, in prison because of obedience to God, and then because of the whim of a silly dancing girl and her evil, adulterous mother, he has his head chopped off, his eyes on the sparrow, and we know he watches us, and he doesn't make any mistakes. I receive many letters from people telling me that they don't feel the presence of God anymore. They're in such deep distress that they really wonder if God is still there. And we know that if there's any doubt whatsoever, it doesn't come from God, does it? It comes from his arch enemy, our ancient foe who constantly seeks to work us woe. And he is good at it, isn't he? 
Every one of us knows that. We know how powerful he is and how persuasive he can be. But a woman was, t was sharing with me, pouring out her heart over the terrible sorrow of her teenage daughter having become pregnant and being very, very rebellious in many ways. And she said, I just have lost the consciousness of the presence of God. Was he there? How did he allow something like that? And my answer to her was, this is the only thing I could think of to say, when, when you lose the consciousness of the presence of God, <coughs> hang on to the conviction that this book is true, that God has given us his word and he will never break it. And he has said in the last chapter of Hebrews, I will never leave you or forsake you. You can do just what Jesus did when he went into the wilderness and he was tempted by the devil. He turned again and again and said, it is written. And remember, he was tempted as a human being. He was hungry. He had been fasting for 40 days. And so Satan came in at the weakest point with his infernal suggestion. If you're the son of God, make these stones into bread. And then, of course, uh, two other temptations, both of which, all three of which were meant to persuade Jesus to save himself. And Jesus never did a miracle to save himself. Remember when he hung on the cross, the taunt that was flung at him from the bystanders was he saved others himself he could not save. If you're the son of God, come down, prove it to us. And he didn't do it. He could have called legions of angels, and they didn't come, and, they, and he didn't call them. He walked on the water on at least one occasion. Other times, he took the usual method of getting across the lake, just as a human being. He had power, but he also had his humanity. And so he turned to the scriptures as his weapon against Satan. And that's what you and I have to do. That verse in Hebrews that says, I will never leave you or forsake you, has actually in the original five different negatives. Now we don't have five different negatives in English. We can't translate that verse as strongly, as powerfully as it is in the original language. But the best we can do is to put five nevers in there. Try that on Satan. It is written, I will never, 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 never leave you or forsake you. The consciousness of his presence is gone. The conviction of his presence is what you have to plant your foot on or hang your soul on. And those are the words that I hung my soul on in some of the dark times of my life. When I received the word that my husband was missing, I was on another station, of course, at the time, and God brought immediately to mind those wonderful words from Isaiah 43, 2. When thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee. I didn't know whether Jim was dead yet or not. But God was not saying if, he was saying 
when you pass through the waters. I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, thou shalt not be burned, neither shall the flame kindle upon thee. For I am the Lord your God. And I can stand here before you this morning and say, my Heavenly Father watches over me. And he absolutely kept those promises. Was it a horribly painful thing to go through? Yes, of course. Did I grieve as any widow would grieve? Yes, of course. But when you pass through the deep waters, I'll be there. When you walk through the fire, I'll be there. The darkest valleys, the deepest waters, the hottest fires are a part of God's curriculum. That's called His Eye is Still on the Sparrow. Part 10 is a question and answer session. We'll get to that in a little bit. First, though, we hear from Amy Van Dyke lead curator of the Museum of the Bible. The museum has an exhibit on Elizabeth Elliot currently. She was very strong. She was very determined. And it was about the work for her. She and Jim knew when they went down there that there were dangers. And the other families with them knew that they may not make it out. But in the end, when she lost Jim and the other women lost their husbands, she didn't want it to be about Jim's death. She didn't want it to be about her going back. She didn't want that sensationalized media. She wanted it to be about the work. And she kept redirecting in her letters. She kept redirecting in interviews. She would write to magazines and newspapers to clarify some of the things that they wrote about the situation because she wanted to highlight the work that needed to be done. And I found that to be inspiring, that she had such a focus on the mission. And it wasn't about her, and it wasn't about Jim, and it wasn't even about her tragedy. She didn't want people to look at her. She wanted people to focus on the work. And I, I thought that was really incredible that she kept that, too, for the rest of her life, that that was a trend and a personality trait that she had. It was about the work. And... You know, one of the things that spoke to me as I was reading her books and her work was she had this line that said, do the next thing. That was something she often said was just do the next thing. And that always spoke to me because we can't, we can't look at years down the road. We can't look at all the things that we have to accomplish and, and hope to get that done. That's overwhelming. But you can do the next thing. Take the next step. Take one step at a time. That's all you have to do. Amy Van Dyke, lead curator at the Museum of the Bible, where there's an exhibit about Elizabeth Elliot currently. Right now, a question and answer session as part 10 continues the series of His Eyes on the Sparrow. Elizabeth will be talking about the loss of Jim Elliot, about marriage, about attitudes. What do you mean by frame your heart? Adjust your attitude. Fit yourself to the sphere in which God has put you. 
if this is where you are, if this is the job in which God has you, if this is the marriage, if this is the house in which you live, then accept it. It's part of acceptance, framing your heart to the burden. I cannot imagine losing my husband. What was your first reaction? Did it take you a long time to get over the loss? At the time that the men were killed, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross had not studied five stages of grief, and she's now famous for having written books on the subject of the five stages of grief. I didn't know anything about the five stages of grief, so I didn't go through them. Um, <laughs> she refers to things like anger and bitterness and um, bargaining with God. Those are steps that never crossed my mind. I couldn't be angry at God, because if one gets angry at God, I cannot imagine where you have to turn. There really isn't any place in the universe that you can turn to if you get angry at God. And I, of course, had been raised on missionary stories, and I knew that missionaries got killed, so I was shocked, but I was not surprised that Jim was killed. I think the most important response that we can give to something as devastating as the loss of a husband or a child is acceptance. In acceptance lies peace. And that is a shortcut to peace. It really is. So I can't tell you how long it took me to get over the loss. I still dream about Jim Elliott once in a while. I have dreamed about Jim and my second husband, Ad, and Lars all in the same dream. <laughs> And when I hear a, hus a wife say that her husband isn't meeting all her needs, I think if I had all three of my husbands simultaneously, they couldn't meet all my needs. <laughs> I mean, it's an absolutely absurd expectation to think that there's any human being in this world that can meet all your needs. No husband can ever do that, nor can any wife do it for you husbands. But we, we can choose the shortcut to peace in any situation that upsets you deeply and that is acceptance. Just get used to unreasonableness, for example. Get used to the conditions that you cannot change. In the Bible, is there an example of a complete marriage? Not a human one, no. The marriage of Christ and his bride is the complete marriage, and that's the only perfect one, which will come about, of course, in heaven. What is the best way to minister to a missionary widow who will be coming back to the United States with three small children? Obviously, she's going to need a place to stay, and she's going to need all the help she can get in getting settled if she's going to stay in the States. My first desire would be to persuade her to go back to the mission field. I just can't imagine a better job for a widow with children than the mission field. It was just the perfect situation for me. Now, I didn't have three children, but I was in a situation where my home was my point of departure. It was all my work was either in my home or out from my home. The Indians came to my home for literacy classes and sewing classes and Bible classes and things like that. I went to the Indians' homes for all sorts of things. I did medical work and I delivered babies. And whenever I went to the Indian homes, my daughter went with me. And I homeschooled her. So it was just a wonderful provision from God. We were well supported, 
And I never can understand why people think that if some huge disaster like that happens that you automatically go back to the States. Of course, I don't know anything about the, the circumstances. And there may be very good reasons for going back to the States, but I would always want to say, well, maybe the best thing for you would be to go back. Maybe they've already learned the language. You know, it just seems a shame. But do anything that you can. The Lord will show you what kindnesses you can show. What are your beliefs concerning women serving as pastors or deacons of a church? My views, my opinions are not worth anything, but this book to me makes it unequivocally clear that women are not supposed to be pastors of churches. We are not to be in positions of authority over men. And that's plain as anything. I don't see anything plainer. The order which obtains in the home in a marriage is that the husband is the head of the wife. It doesn't say because he's smarter than she is or because he's more spiritual or because he's better looking or because he's taller or because she's incompetent. It is because he has been assigned a divine office, which is not optional for him. And God will hold him responsible for that office. Now, if a wife is to be submissive to her husband in the home because he represents Christ and she represents the church, the bride of Christ, how can the order be different in the church? The Apostle Paul said that women were to keep silence and to be modest. But the Apostle Paul did say that women could pray and prophesy. And prophesying means building up and encouraging the church. My advice to women nowadays, because of such a mess that has been made due to the feminist movement and this whole idea of equality and interchangeability, which has just done untold damage in the church, in the home, in our, the individual personality, not to mention in society, my advice to women is if you go to a prayer meeting, a church prayer meeting, let the men do the praying first. Don't be the one that starts it. And so many women come to me and say, well, we have to do this and that and the other thing in the church because the men won't do it. Well, my answer to that is two wrongs don't make a right. You're not going to help the men to awake and realize that it is their responsibility as long as you're taking it. Because what happened in the Garden of Eden? Eve took the initiative. Adam wimped out. And God held Adam responsible because he was the head of the wife. If Adam had dug in his heels and said, no way are we going to eat that fruit, it would be a different story, wouldn't it? But ever since then, men have been just folding their arms and saying, well, if, the little, if that was, that's what the little lady wants, then that's what the little lady's going to have. And just let them do it. You know, the women want to run the church, fine. All we have to do is sit in the back row. Of course, when we stop, doing these things that are not our business, maybe everything will fall apart. And maybe that's exactly what God wants to wake up the men. Now, of course, I don't know any of the men in this audience, and I don't know that you're acting in this way. But God help us all. We women need to learn to keep our mouths shut and to back off and to shut up and to let the men do the praying first. I'm not saying it's wrong for a woman to take part in a prayer meeting or some other areas in the church, but never in a place which would usurp a man's authority. Will you elaborate on going back to win the Alcas to the Lord? 
Well, very shortly after Jim died, I had said, Lord, I am available if there's anything you want me to do about the Alka Indians, thinking it was a very safe prayer, that there was not the slightest chance that God was going to ask this widow with this baby to go in and live with the Alkas. But in a very unusual way, through a set of unimagined circumstances, I happened to be in the right place at the right time when two Alka women appeared out of the jungle, and I was able to make contact with them. And through them, was able to take my daughter and go and live with the Alcas. And at that time, Rachel Saint, who was the sister of the pilot, she was in the States at the time that I made that contact. When she came back to Ecuador, then she went in with us. And so we lived together with those Indians for two years, my daughter and I. And Rachel continued with them off and on over a period of many years. And she died in 1994 of cancer. Have you ever considered making a movie of your life story? No. <laughs> Were you ever present for Indian childbirth? Yes, many times. I delivered many an Indian baby. My deliveries were only when there, were, when there was something wrong. I don't think I was ever asked for a normal delivery. It was when there were problems that then they called me and I had to go. And of course, I didn't know beans about anything. But I did succeed in, in delivering the first live breech baby. The Indians absolutely believed that no breech baby would ever live because they did such terrible things in trying to yank them out that they killed them in the process. And a doctor had given me some hints on what to do to deliver the breech. And when that happened for the first time, if it hadn't been for my daughter Valerie, who was then about, um, she must have been about 14 months old, and she just happened to toddle out from where she was sleeping at about 4.30 in the morning when I was desperately trying to get these Indian women to give me some hot cloths to keep this baby from starting to breathe. Because one problem, if you have a breech and the whole body had been born but not the head, I was yelling at them, would you please give me some hot water and some cloth? And they refused because they didn't want to get their clothes messed up. The only cloths they had were clothes. And in the providence of God, this baby came toddling out, Valerie, for 4.30 4 in the morning. And I said, Valerie, run and get a diaper. And she ran and got a diaper. And that helped to save the baby's life. What advice would you give to someone married to an unsaved spouse? First Peter 3 tells, it's to the wife in First Peter 3, if it's an unsaved husband, which usually seems to be the case, Peter tells us that we are to have a gentle and quiet spirit. And he says he may be one without a word being spoken. He is not going to be one by nagging. It would be very unwise for you to shove Elizabeth Elliot tapes at him <laughs> or leave Elizabeth Elliot books around with highlighting, hoping that he'll notice it. But your job is to love that man and pray for him and love him so much that he might wonder what it is that makes you love him when he probably does know that he's not pleasing you by the way he's acting. Mainly, prayer is the thing you can do. Part 10 in His Eye is on the Sparrow, a question and answer session. Well, we've been thinking about life in Ecuador, about the sacrifice of the five men. Steve McCauley. His father, Ed, was one of those missionaries killed in Operation Alka. He says 
fewer and fewer people even remember this story. You know, just like anything, as it goes, as time goes by, it's almost 70 years ago. You know, there's less and less people who remember it. And there's a whole generation of people who lived it through Elizabeth's writing, but there's not a whole lot of us left, you know, who lived it, who can remember it happening. Yeah, I I think the legacy uh, is just one of uh, five couples just wanting to do God's will, right? Uh, and that's that's all any of us can be asked for. Uh, I remember my my grandpa, my grand, my dad's dad, who was my first memory of heartache because he died when I was 13 years old, and he he was such a devout Christian and such a great guy. And I can remember him saying to me when I was just a little kid. And Steve, you need to realize that God is probably not going to ask you to die for him. He said, but he is going to ask you to live for him. If you are willing to live for something, you know, in the end, you would be willing to die for it. Steve McCauley, son of Ed, who gave his life, reaching out to the Waldani people. Well, our time is coming to an end, but thanks for letting us come into your home. Your office may be along with you as you jogged a bit today, wherever we found you. On behalf of the Elizabeth Elliott Foundation, in cooperation with the Bible Broadcasting Network, let me invite you to check out all the resources at elizabethelliot.org. elizabethelliot.org Also on Apple Podcasts, Rachel writes, My friend Elizabeth Elliott, I enjoy listening to Elizabeth Speak Truth. She helps me keep my focus on God and reminds me to do all that I do for His glory. And until next time, may God remind you daily you are loved with an everlasting love. And underneath are the everlasting arms 